0: Hello and welcome to CMEC's podcast from this year's International Institute for Strategic Studies Manama Dialogue Conference. Avid listeners of the CMEC podcast will recall that we did a podcast from here last year, and a lot has changed since then. Who could have imagined that we would see Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine in this year? This conference has been mainly focused on that and the impact that international conflict and threats um, of China's ambitions further abroad may have on the region as well as the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I'm going to be speaking to various delegates here at the IISS Manama Dialogue. I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm the director of CMEC, the Conservative Middle East Council. I'm delighted to be joined here by Lord Soames, CMEC's honorary president, who, as Nicholas Soames, MP, served in the House of Commons for 36 years. Lord Soames, it's wonderful to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Charlotte. It's lovely to be on the CMEC delegation again.
0: You are no stranger to the Malamar dialogue and um, no stranger to Bahrain. Can you briefly tell me about the changes in the progress you've seen in Bahrain over the time that you've been here over the years?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's a very good question, Charlotte, because it's changed beyond all recognition, really, from being a slightly sleepy backwater to a very dynamic, growing place. And it's had some strokes of great good fortune. Um, it had uh, a remarkable inheritance when King Hamad took over from Sheikh Isa. The crown prince, Sheikh Salman, is a tremendous force for good here and reform and progress and I think the lives and lots of the Bahraini citizens has greatly improved and you only have to look around you I and mean, you've been here many times yourself to see how, how calm it is. They went through a very ropey and difficult time, they un- undertook some very serious reforms which were Britain was um, honoured to be able to help with And um, I think they've done very, very well. So it's become really, you only have to look at the skyline to see what's happened here. And it is now a very increasingly important place for inward investment. And, you know, in particular, I think the the conditions of people here are very much better. And it feels very calm. And I'm very impressed, I think we all were on the delegation, to hear from His Excellency General Rashid, the Minister of the Interior, that the turnout had been 73% for the election. That's a very respectable turnout anywhere in the world. They voted again last night, and again the turnout was about 73%, which is very good. And it means that they, ha- the public, have had their say here. And it may produce some surprising results. You never know. It, it, it's really remarkable how far they've come. I think, and, and I think it's patronising to say that. I mean, I think this is a very enlightened place. And it always has been, actually, but it's it's just taken advantage of progress by the throat and, and, and got on with it.
0: It's a hackneyed phrase, but would you say lessons really have been learnt since 2011?
1: Yes, I think they. it's not a hackneyed phrase, because it's a very good phrase, and it's completely true. It was really very unpleasant. I was here then. I, I arrived while it was... it would happen while I was here. It was very unpleasant, something I never thought to live to see the day on the streets of of, uh, of Malama I mean really was absolutely extraordinary. And they realized that things could not continue as they were, that it was quite wrong to allow this basic unfairness to exist, and those reforms have been put in place that has enabled that to happen. And it doesn't happen without very big hard work, commitment and leadership. And I think the king, his majesty the king and the crown prince and their government have done a very, very good job. And, you know, it's very easy for people who don't come here to criticise. You know, this is not Tunbridge Wells. This is in the middle of the Middle East. It's a very important ally, partner, geographic, geographic of vital importance to Britain's interests. They're very old friends of ours, the Bahrainis, very old friends and very loyal friends and we should treat our friends like friends, in my view.
0: And turning to the dialogue, the International Institute of Strategic Studies mm. holds a dialogue here, the Manamo dialogue every year, at which you've been a regular attendee. What has struck you most about the themes that have emerged from the dialogue? What, what's, what's been the interesting points? Well, I,
1: I, I'm terribly struck by the fact that, first of all, the tone was very well set, I think you'll agree, by a really formidable speech from Ursula von der Leyen. On the Friday night, she really made an incredibly powerful speech, and I I mean, I've never heard a European Union official ever make a speech like that before. It was very robust indeed. It said very importantly about the view about the the, the European Union, speaking about the Middle East as a whole, quite clearly. Reassuring people here that it is of the first importance, the first rank of importance. But I think the theme that has run through them, and I don't know whether you agree with this, Charlotte, but through all of them, you know, this is a, a region that has been in turmoil for generations. And it doesn't seem to be getting any easier. That's the trouble. And, you know, in Bahrain, you're in an oasis of calm. But, you know, the Iranian situation is extremely threatening to many of our friends in the Gulf. What goes on there is, is just appalling. And, uh, you know, I think we've all watched with horror at the way that the, the riots are being dealt with in, and the behaviour of the, of the Iranians towards their people. And then there's a constant nervousness of going on about America. There is a tremendous amount of uncertainty here, although I think the Americans, who had a very formidable de- deputation here, I think they put a lot of that to rest because I think that America is quite clearly now realized that its initial stand on the Middle East at the beginning of the Biden administration was absolutely not good enough and that it was leading to terrible trouble for American interests. So I think that that has all smartened up. But the only thing that I would say is it comes from this is my grandfather had a very good expression. You should always keep your friendships in good repair And we must never take these relationships for granted. And you're just looking up on that platform, you look at the range of countries from which these speakers come. Some of them come from countries with whom we're very close. Some of them come from countries we ought to be much closer to and do much more with. But to be frank, I think that British foreign policy has returned in spades to the Middle East with James Cleverley as Foreign Secretary. And I thought he made a really excellent speech. I thought his wording was absolutely superb and they were so pleased to hear him say it. And I don't think we often understand that it matters here that the British Foreign Secretary comes to this. Um, because we have such extensive and perhaps they see our interests clearer than we do. And I hope the Foreign Secretary will, as long as the Foreign Secretary, continue to come to this, because it sends an invaluable message to an area. It's not true to say it's in chaos. I mean, you look at you look at the Emirates and you look on beyond that and Saudi Arabia. There are areas of huge and profound change and very important change. And we will support that as well as we can. Lord
0: Soames, thank you as ever very much indeed. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm here at the Manama Dialogue, and I've just bumped into Sir Alan Duncan. Sir Alan, of course, former chairman of CMEC, which is his greatest accolade, but some might say <laughs> it's being a former minister for Europe. Sir Alan, it's lovely to see you again. How are you? How's the conference oh, been? Very
2: good, thank you. Very nice to see you.
0: <laughs> Earlier in the, one of the plenary sessions, you asked a question on an issue that's very close to CMEC's heart. You asked a question on the issue of the FSO SAFA off the coast of Yemen. Could you explain to listeners who may not know what the FSO SAFA is, what your
2: question was, why it matters? Well, the SAFA is a, a VLCC, so a very large crude carrier, which has been sitting off Hadeda moored, for a number of years with a million barrels of oil on it, plus some connecting pipeline full of oil as well. And the VLCC, the, the ship, is falling to bits. It's rusting. It's about to break up. And if this happens, you'll have an oil spill in the Red Sea, you know, bigger than the Exxon Valdez, and it would be an absolute environmental catastrophe. The the Red Sea would become the Dead Sea. So for a number of years, I and some other people have been campaigning to say that you've somehow got to cut through the conflict in Yemen in order to get a resolution to this, because it's in everybody's interests to stop the Red Sea being contaminated in a way which would be absolutely devastating. So this ship needs to be um, decanted into another one, taken away and sorted. But at the moment, the differences in the conflict are preventing that.
0: Sounds simple. What's the problem? Where does the Safa lie? Whose waters does it sit in?
2: Well, it's it's off Hadeda, which is in the Red Sea, so as it were, the top left-hand corner coast uh, of Yemen. And that port is under Houthi control and they want to keep this as a bargaining chip because it's an asset which they can use to negotiate other things. But what it needs is an agreement to um, transship the content, scrap the ship, give some of the value perhaps to the Houthis so they can pay salaries or something like that, but to get this floating time bomb taken away for for the good of the world, really. So that's the challenge we face. It's, it's quite a dangerous operation to tranship from an old rust bucket, which has got inert gases inside, the ship could break up, the risk of an explosion is actually quite high. But if this isn't done, this is going to sit there forever until the day it leaks into the sea.
0: And I guess the humanitarian and economic impact would be
2: huge. Yes, I mean, it would affect Yemen, of course, but also Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, it would put an end to clean water, all of the coral life. It would, as I say, turn the Red Sea into the Dead Sea. This is an absolute looming catastrophe of a magnitude that I think exceeds any other environmental danger I can think of.
0: And if we were here at the Manama Dialogue a few years ago, Yemen would have been at the top of everyone's agenda and we'd have all been talking about it. Do you think that the crisis in Yemen, and Yemen more generally, has fallen off the agenda?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if there are two things missing here: is Yemen and Syria, actually. Both have rather fallen off the agenda and yet could be described... In each case, as you have just described it, I mean, I've had a passion for Yemen ever since I went there nearly 40 years ago. I and mean, I bought the first ever exported cargo of crude oil from Yemen in 1986. And I've travelled throughout the country, sort of Sanaa to Aden on half a dozen occasions. I've visited most of the major cities, gone across to the east, to the Hadramaut and to um, Makra. And so I've got a passion for Yemen as, if you like, the the sort of forgotten orphan of the richer areas of the gulf and it's always upset me that british foreign policy has always been inclined to be nice to the rich ones but ignore this poor one at the south but it's been bedeviled by conflict which we can go into in a a second Uh, but i think that the misery the the famine the disease uh, and the sheer violence we're seeing in the country could be settled and needs to be if we focus on it
0: I mean, the humanitarian crisis, even if it's not on our headlines, is diabolical in Yemen still. Where are we with the conflict, and what could we as the international community be doing more of and doing better?
2: I witnessed the origin of this conflict uh, over ten years ago when I was International Development Minister, and we had what people call the Arab Spring, which spread from North Africa but into Yemen as well. And the GCC had a... An initiative really, which was to try and replace Ali Abdullah Saleh as the long-term president of Yemen, and try and bring a more legitimate government in. Well, they, you know, they did this, but when Saleh went, it actually left a vacuum, and the Houthis stepped into that vacuum. They pretty well went through the the front gate of Sanaa, and they were mainly, until then, the tribal power in the north, but they've spread their influence across almost all of the country now, and have largely displaced the Government of what was then President Hadi, which had a thin legitimacy of uh, electoral justification. And the Saudis felt threatened, and with a coalition started by bombing Yemen, which is not the way to fix the problem. But this has rumbled on now for 10 years. So that is the origin of this problem. And it would be good if some kind of settlement can be reached. But one of the main problems that's happened on the back of the Houthis stepping into the vacuum is that it it has sucked the Iranians into exercising influence and support for the Houthis in Yemen, which wasn't really there before. I mean, Iranian influence was talked about, but now it's become a real phenomenon. And with growing technology over these last few years, the Iranians are now exporting and using drones. They're using drones themselves on shipping in the Gulf of Oman. They've supplied the Houthis, who have flown them into the UAE uh, and Saudi Arabia. And, of course, the Iranians are also selling them now to Russia to be used in Ukraine. And that has been one of the main themes of this dialogue. But what it means is just when the Houthis could perhaps make some progress and build up international trust, uh, they have done a lot to destroy it by deploying these drones. So it leaves really the the coalition who stepped in very little alternative, but uh, wait for better sense. And that is a tragedy, both for Yemen, but also, of course, for the difficulty of solving the problem of the Safa, which is the, the floating rust bucket.
0: And just moving the moment to Iran, what impact and effect do you think the protests that are beginning to be quite brutally crushed, but the protests in Iran, um, particularly by women, are going to have on the rest of the region and Iran itself and Iranian influence?
2: Well, I mean, I think this is a, a critical question because the hope of the JCPOA, the, uh, the, the sort of plan of action to contain the nuclear threat, was that the Iranians would see sense and, and back off from converting themselves into a nuclear power. The problem with a theocratic regime like Iran is that they're not rational in the way that we are rational. And so the chances really of the JCPOA being a success are, I think, diminishing very fast. And they're being stupidly aggressive in wider international theaters. But. Something's happening inside Iran. And I have a feeling that for the first time since the Iranian revolution of 1979, when the Shah was deposed, that it may be that the unrest is far more significant than the little bursts we've seen in the past. So always the question hanging over Iran is, you know, as there was a revolution in 1979, when are we going to see the counter-revolution? And one of the theories of 1979 was that actually the Shah had been quite liberal and it was the theocrats who ganged up against him and deposed him. Now, it could be that, if there's a counter-revolution brewing, and who knows, that the reverse of that is what we're now seeing. And it is women who are, if you like, the, the engine of the protests we're seeing, which are not really happening in Tehran, as they have happened in the past, but all over the rest of the country... And that, I think, is the significant difference between the protests we've seen in the past and the ones I think we're seeing today. And yes, they're being brutally crushed, but that may well be the spark that makes the wider population turn against these very, very extreme people who have been uh, ruthlessly running the country for 40 years.
0: And what will the sunny Gulf states the other Gulf states be thinking as they see that kind of um, uprising in Iran?
2: Well, I think they will feel justified and vindicated to some extent in that if you look at the Abraham Accords, they were to a large extent an alliance of, of, of interested Gulf states against what they saw as a threat from Iran. And so if there is a turnaround in Iran itself then that will make them think that actually uh, what they've done together, in holding together, was a good judgment. Um, So I think that's no bad thing in my view, whereas the downside of the Abraham Accords in my view is that it is an alliance against Iran at the expense of Palestine. And that is the third issue that is missing off this agenda. Syria, Yemen, Palestine. Three areas of contention which are always there, but haven't really been discussed in detail compared with what has been the focus of this dialogue, which is the transition from fossil to renewable energy.
0: So Alan, we could talk all afternoon. Thank you very much. It's lovely to speak to you. My pleasure. In the lobby, I have come across Ian Lindsay. Ian, hello. Would Hi. you mind uh, introducing yourself and telling us what you do
3: and where you come from, as they say in the quiz shows? Um, Charlotte, lovely to see you again. I'm uh, Ian Lindsay. I'm an advisor to the chairman of the Bahrain Economic Development Board, His Royal Highness the Crown Prince and Prime Minister. And I was British ambassador here from 2011 to 2015. Uh, I left the Foreign Office two years ago and I came back here beginning of last year. And the Economic Development Board is essentially Bahrain's um, inward investment agency. We're promoting investment into uh, Bahrain. When we were set up by the Crown Prince 20 years ago, uh, the goal was to diversify Bahrain's economy away from oil and gas. So in the early 2000s, oil and gas was 40% of GDP. Uh, Now it is less than 20%, um, and other areas like financial services, Manufacturing, logistics, uh, are all now um, coming up, and financial services. For the last two quarters, for example, has been a bigger contributor to the economy than oil and gas, despite the higher oil price.
0: How are you seeing global Britain fitting into Bahrain's economic development plans?
3: Well, the Bahrain, together with the other GCC countries, uh, is negotiating uh, an FTA uh, with the UK. Um, and, of course, now that Britain has left the European Union, it has the ability, obviously, to strike out on its own with uh, FTAs. Um, uh, the GCC has been negotiating with the European Union for over 20 years to get an FTA without success. I sincerely hope we're not going to be waiting that long for an agreement between the UK and uh, and the GCC. I think we'd like to see a fairly quick FTA, keep it basic, and then augment that with individual annexes or appendices for each country. Because the reality is, um, as was the case when Britain was the European Union, um, you know, countries bring different demands to the table. Um, and uh, if we try and agree everything, uh, it'll take a while. So I think just try and keep it um, uh, fairly bare bones, and then we can take it from there. Uh, because actually for for for... for for the, the UK, GCC is an incredibly important trading part. We heard it earlier today. Um, after the European Union, US and China, GCC is the UK's fourth largest export market. And this is a booming part of the world. And I know you know, coming from the UK at the moment, you know, coming to a place where growth rates are looking this year to be around about 6 to 7%, low inflation, high growth, and that's likely to stay the case probably for the next two to three years.
0: So, you say the GCC should be a major focus for UK government at the moment as an
3: opportunity, as a growth zone? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, this is a high growth area. There are very few parts of the world that are growing as fast. there's fact, no, there's, there's nowhere else in the world that's growing as fast as the GCC. Now, obviously, is a fairly small place, you know, 1.5 million people. Um, but even our own economic recovery plan um, uh, of $30 billion, that's 75% of our GDP uh, spent on major projects, infrastructure projects. Housing, transport, logistics, um, uh, that's that's a significant investment for the future. And then we're surrounded by countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE with also mega investment plans. Um, uh, it really has to make sense for British companies, if they're not already looking at the Gulf, to be looking at opportunities here.
0: I and mean, You're no stranger to the region. You've, no. you've known the region for a long time. What changes have you seen, and what do you think of the focus of the dialogue this year in the context of, of the region, as you've known it for a long time?
3: I think um, one of the, the, the biggest changes we're seeing in the region um, is um, uh, so Saudi Arabia is maybe the biggest change we're seeing. Um, uh, people you know, um, people be used to Dubai, glitzy Dubai, glitzy Qatar, but Saudi Arabia is now investing trillions of dollars into future investment. Um, uh, a largely young population uh, wanting to equip them for the future um, and uh, so I think the emergence of Saudi Arabia I think is, is, the, is the, big, um, the, the big change we've seen um, I'll give you an example of that, last year at the uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's major conference, the Future Investment Initiative Conference in Riyadh on the last day, 45 international companies announced that they were shifting their regional headquarters from Dubai to Riyadh as an indication that, that Saudi Arabia, 35 million people, the biggest economy in our world feels that it should be the center for international business on the Arabian Peninsula, not Dubai. Our challenge here in Bahrain is to ensure that we are not sort of collateral damage from the increasing competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, both of whom are incredibly close partners for us. Uh, they are by far the biggest investors um, um, in Bahrain and that is likely to be the case for some time to come. Um, I think it's been good that we've seen uh, GCC, some of the issues relating to Qatar. Um, we had the GCC summit last year where we saw the Emir invited to Saudi Arabia, that was an important step. We've seen further steps since then, um, but there's more to do on that. The GCC, My view is the GCC needs to be far more united um, if it is to, to be a major international player. And also thinking from the flip side of opportunities to risks, thinking of Iran, Um, uh, the GCC will be far more effective in uh, handling Iran uh, if it's united. Um, There will
0: be listeners uh, listening to our interview now who think, well, hang on, you can't talk about the GCC, you can't talk about this part of the world, um, or Iran indeed, without talking about human rights. How does our financial and trade relationship impact on what we'd like to see um, on human rights standards in the region?
3: I think Britain has been very supportive of uh, human rights reforms uh, um, uh, across uh, the region. Obviously, the the area that I know best is here in Bahrain. Um, Our reaction to what happened in 2011 was to reach out to our friend and partner, long-time partner, and say, "Uh, you have said you need assistance, we'd like to give it to you. Um, And we were criticised for doing so. And so, how, how do people expect places like Bahrain to progress unless we assist them? your also friends. In the UK. I mean, right, yes, that's right. This is the, the, the tale of the Good Samaritan. You know, um, a lot of the people, I think, who criticize human rights here in Bahrain or elsewhere in the Gulf would like us to go on the other side of the road. On that basis, how then, does, how then does Bahrain change? I think the reality is there's an agenda of some people which is basically we think the Gulf states are unreformable, we want to see sort of revolution. You know, revolution. Um, you know uh, wake up and smell the coffee. That's not going to happen. In a month of Sundays, uh, Bahrain is one of only two countries in the region which has got an elected parliament. Kuwait and Bahrain. In fact, today is the second round of the Bahraini elections. Um, and um, you know, Bahrain is not a Nordic democracy. Um, but then there are many, many countries which you know um, uh, are n- not at that level with whom we have very strong, close relationships. So we help Bahrain. What, well, from my perspective, as a former ambassador here. It's great to see the way that the British programme of assistance and support is still very strong. That's really important because Bahrain is, in my view, the most anglophile of the Gulf states. They are our oldest friends in the Gulf and they help us. They host here the Royal Navy. There aren't very many other places around the world that host the British Royal Navy and they bend over backwards to help us with that. They regard the UK as a home from home. So I think we need to be respectful of other people. Mm. Nobody is perfect.
0: And and I guess we're in the build-up to the World Cup, and when Britain last won the World Cup in 1966, it's easy to forget that homosexuality is not legal.
3: Exactly. On which point, just for your listeners who may not be aware of Bahrain, Bahrain is the only country in the Arabian Gulf where homosexuality is not illegal. Uh, And as another measure, if you like, of social liberalism, uh, Bahrain is the only country in the Arabian Gulf where you do not need a license to buy alcohol, and the, the reality is that Crown Prince Salman, I would, uh, my view is that he's probably the most progressive, reformist leader, not just in the Gulf but probably the whole of the Arab world. So it's easy to forget when you've got people with vested interests, you know, criticising Bahrain, crit- you know, criticising the royal family here, forgetting actually. The Bahrainis are incredibly close, good friends of ours. They listen to what we say. I doubt they would listen to what we say if we took out a loud hailer and said, do better. Indeed, the words of one of your former colleagues in Parliament was when I came here, is that actually it's not a good, very, not a very good way of coaching people. You know, you want to work with people. You want to help people. You want to help your friends when they're in trouble. You reach out a hand to help them. You don't shout at them from a distance and say, do better next time. What does that mean? We provide a lot of assistance here in Bahrain, as we have elsewhere in the Gulf, and that will continue. The very fact that Bahrainis still want our assistance, I think, is actually a good measure of the relationship. It will be easy enough for them to stay. actually, chaps, you know, the world has changed. Uh, 2011 was a long time ago, and frankly, having come back to Bahrain you know, two years ago, this is a very different country from ten years ago. Um, the main, I suppose, the thing, particularly as I travel around the world, looking back at the Gulf is just realising actually that the Gulf is incredibly successful and there's still a magnet for many, many people from around the world. It's easy to forget, you know, people obviously, we've, you know, talking about the developments in Qatar and the UAE. When I was in the UAE for the Dubai Expo earlier this year, three or four times, you know, look at these huge buildings, think, wow. Actually, the thing that I thought was more of a wow to me was just thinking about the millions and millions of people from the Indian subcontinent who have been lifted out of poverty because they, all their family members, have worked in this part of the world and the remittances have been sent back. You know, it's easy enough to to, to criticise people from migrant workers. They wouldn't be getting the jobs that they've got here or in other places back in India. Obviously, India's changing. I was in India beginning of September, and I was in Hyderabad, which is a high-tech city. But the reality is that this is still a part of the world where people from other parts of the world, South Asia, Southeast Asia, still rely upon work here. Uh, If the shutters were to come down, there would be a lot poorer people in the Indian subcontinent and in Southeast Asia.
0: Ian, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm here with His Majesty's Ambassador to Bahrain, Roddy Drummond. Roddy, it's lovely to see you again.
4: Uh, It's great to see you, uh, Charlotte, and it doesn't seem like a year since the last Manama Dialogue.
0: It absolutely doesn't, and what a year we've had. Would you mind talking us through your year as an ambassador here in Bahrain and what you've seen?
4: Well, it's been a very positive year, by and large, because there's been a real bounce back in Bahrain post COVID. Uh, The economy is really going strongly, we're seeing lots of different new trade investment developments. We're seeing British firms finding new ways to engage in the economy here in different kinds of tech, in education and research and financial services and a whole variety of other things. So there's a real energy about the place. And particularly in recent months, when we've had a lot of visits and events, really high-profile things like the visit of His Holiness the Pope and other religious leaders to talk about interfaith. We've had the Bahrain International Air Show back for the first time uh, for after four years with the Red Arrows uh, doing several displays and a host of other you know exciting things, sporting events, uh, the International Trophy horse race the other day, and back in March, of course, we had uh, the. Um, the F1. We also really enjoyed, um, seems like a long time ago now, but thinking back to May and June, the various events around Her Majesty's Jubilee and uh, we were able to celebrate that in style here in Bahrain with her many friends and supporters here from royal family, from ministers and all the business families with a gala dinner back in June. But then of course at the end of the summer we had the sad news of her passing and the the period of mourning and condolences with so many beautiful messages from Bahrainis who loved the Queen and for whom she meant a great deal to their lives and their families. And that was a very moving uh, period. Um, with relations now with uh, the royal family uh, reinforced by that in a way with um, His Majesty King Hamad and uh, His Majesty King Charles uh, seeing each other just um, before the funeral and um, in close touch. So it's been an, uh, an up and down year but by and large a very very positive year.
0: And it really underlines, I was privileged enough to witness the very close relationship between His Majesty the King here in Bahrain and Her Late Majesty. Those personal relationships really matter in terms of diplomacy, nation to nation relationships don't they?
4: Absolutely um, and uh, that, that warmth enables you to put even more substance into the relationships in so many different ways uh, with Bahraini supporting uh, causes that are important to, to us in, in a variety of different ways. With Her Late Majesty and uh, King Hamad of course it was the shared love of horses and uh, uh, in so many different ways they would enjoyed lovely times together in uh, the recent decades. But yes, it remains as close and personal as ever.
0: And it's been, as you outlined, really a very up and down year. And as we speak, we have the illegal war, Russia's illegal war in Ukraine rages on. We have protests in Iran, and at, at, at time of speaking, we don't know what direction those are going to take. How does all that look from here in Bahrain, both for Bahrain, for the UK, and the UK's relationships with the region?
4: Yeah, well, the context um, globally and the context uh, in, uh, in the region, of course, Yes, remains difficult. Um, I think it took people here a little time to realise the the wider impact, the ramifications of uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, although uh, this region has uh, condemned it in the General Assembly. But the impact on food security, the impact on energy security in many parts of the world, that came through, of course, uh, months later, and people are really just digesting that now. And we've also seen uh, continued... um, Activity by uh, Iranian proxy groups and smuggling of conventional arms and, and so on. The Royal Navy has been very busy interdicting some of those routes, as well as uh, clamping down on narcotics flowing through this region, which uh, which also remains a, a preoccupation. But yes, uh, the events across in Iran uh, are uh, are very troubling. Uh, terrible. Repression that's happening with the very brave young demonstrators coming out and demanding change. Uh, people are watching to see how what happens next uh, in, on that too.
0: Going back to, to Russia and Iran, lots of Western commentators have noted that Gulf states, including Bahrain, abstained on some UN resolutions con- condemning Russia's actions. Um, later, voted voted with with the West. Now we're seeing Iranian drones being used by Russia in Ukraine. How does that affect the region, the Gulf region's view of Russia and interaction with Iran? Because obviously the Gulf region has a relationship with Russia, and to a casual onlooker, that that can seem confusing.
4: Yes. Uh, well, I mean, on the essential votes, um, all the countries of this region have condemned the illegal um, invasion. Uh, and the uh, taking of another territory by force is not something that anyone uh, in this region can uh, uh, can support and there are long memories of what happened to Kuwait in 1990 uh, on that but I think um, the connections between Iran Russia and so on have really come to the surface and become visible and people are just drawing the conclusions um, of what that means uh, with the same drones being used to attack uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, facilities in Saudi Arabia as are being used against the civilians of Kyiv and other parts of Ukraine. Uh, So people are absorbing that lessons, that was one of the things that people were uh, discussing in the last couple of days in the Manama dialogue and that has produced I think a renewed determination to work together to try and combat uh, these things.
0: A lot of listeners will be listening to this and saying well what about Bahrain's record on human rights, This is an issue that often gets raised in the UK. What is the situation here on human rights issues, and what more can Britain do, Mm. and what progress has Bahrain made?
4: So, uh, just yesterday, um, we had the final stage of the elections. Um, uh, It happened every four years, and those uh, had had a very high turnout, about 73%, and very lively campaigning and media and social media. Uh, on uh, sort of pocketbook issues but um, really uh, lively campaigning um, and a lot of new MPs so I think only seven of the 40 MPs have been returned and it's a wholesale change and I think um, people here are looking to see what that will mean as they debate the legislation that the government will uh, put forward but I think over this last year, over this last several years, we've seen really tangible steps forward uh, in human rights in Bahrain um, in really important areas, some of which are supported by the UK. So the use of the alternative sentencing, uh, which is like being on, uh, on remand or probation, if you like, in our system, has Meant the release of more than sixty percent, six zero percent of the prison population, and that's um, a huge boon to thousands of families of so people being released early, after good behaviour, and uh, and so on, and that's applied to new prisoners too. We've seen a remarkable uh, new juvenile justice system set up, new law, which um, operates to international standards and ensures that children are not treated by the regular judicial system if they commit some offense they're dealt with by social workers in different centers and prisons and uh, with support and counseling you know help back into their their families so these are really big uh, steps forward Um, and there are others you know I think Bahrain continues to have a really strong record on uh, combating trafficking on migrant labor rights and uh, definitely the best in this region and continues to improve uh, in that area. They were remarkably good through Covid, for example, ensuring that every person that lives here received free treatment and free vaccinations and free testing.
0: Including migrant workers.
4: Including migrant workers uh, and campaigns to explain the importance of um, the vaccinations and so on in um, many different languages uh, were carried out. repeatedly by the by the government here. So they a really strong record on that, uh, which I think was uh, noted by the migrant labour uh, communities and, and their embassies.
0: And finally, it's been a year, we couldn't have predicted what happened during this year. Have you any projections for what the Manama Dialogue will be talking about next year?
4: Well, inevitably, there could be some other unforeseen black swan events, but I think we'll be talking about, I hope, the things we've been discussing this year about more cooperation, new groupings on security to deal jointly with the issues, the challenges in the region and around us, we'll be able to assess how much progress we're making on tackling some of these. And I hope that the the joint work that we do with so many others here has continued to keep the sea lanes free and deter malign activity from wherever it comes.
0: I'm here with His Majesty's Ambassador to Bahrain, Roddy Drummond. Thank you very much. It's lovely to see you again.
4: Thank you very much, Sharna. Good to see you.